morning, gents. It's nice to be in a good, warm place this morning. Hey, some of you uh, who are not members of Second Presbyterian Church, uh, I just want you to know that this past week I announced to our congregation that uh, I'll be 64 years old next month, and when I turn 66, seems to me right, good, and appropriate that I should retire as senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church, which I shall do in February 2017. And I told our congregation, the 11 o'clock congregation last week, I said, you know, uh, Gordon McDonald says that when you're making a handoff in a relay race, both runners, the one finishing the race and the one starting off, are going as hard as they can go. Uh, when you finish the race to pass off the baton, if you've been in a relay race before, you're just gunning it, and the guy in the head of you is taking off as hard as he can go, and that's, how, that's when you make the handoff. So I plan to gun it for the next two years. And I, I told them, I said, the only problem is as you get older, you're going as hard as you can go. You're just going slower. <laughs> that's just the problem. Uh, but I'll be going as hard as I can go over the next two years, and we're trusting the Lord to provide for us uh, the next senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church. Uh, some of you will wonder, well, what does that mean for amen? What it means for amen is I'm going to gun it as hard as we can go for the next two years. We've got a lot to talk about. And uh, some of you, a few of you who are here when we started out 20 years ago, you'll remember that we started with Paul's letter to the Romans. And I think I told you somewhere along the line that's where we were going to end. So we're going to start a study of Paul's letter to the Romans next fall. And it'll probably take us a little bit more than that year uh, to finish Romans. Uh, 16 chapters just chock full of great doctrinal and practical uh, teaching. So that's what we'll do in Amen starting next fall. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so guys, uh, just charge. Go as hard as you can. And then after that, after I retire as senior minister, I'm not going to retire from ministry. I don't know exactly what I'll be doing. I've always said that uh, I thought I would be doing interim pastorates. Uh, I, seem, I think I'm suited for that. And I'll be doing that, I think, for several years. But I don't know for sure. I don't have anything lined up two years from now. We'll just wait and see what happens. But I will be in ministry, Lord uh, willing, and uh, Allison's in my health uh, willing. Uh, so that's what, that's what we plan to do afterwards. Well, let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27, and we are going to do the impossible today. I thought it, since I was out of town until last night, I thought about asking one of my colleagues to teach this morning, but then I thought, no, that's not fair to anybody. Four chapters in one amen morning, impossible. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to go fast. We're going to go hard like we're in a relay race. Uh, so let's turn to chapter 27. And what we're going to see in these chapters is we, we've seen how David deals with his friends, with Jonathan. We've seen how he deals with love, with Abigail. We're going to see how he deals with his enemies and how his enemies deal with him and how God deals with both of them, which is the most important thing. But let's turn to chapter 27 and uh, look at this story right here. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. 
For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, in the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerimalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. This is an amazing chapter. Uh, We want to make several uh, notes here. Uh, But notice, first of all, the background. David is completely exhausted. He's been chased by Saul now for chapters upon chapter. Uh, in the study that we've had for years. Saul's been chasing him in the wilderness, in the mountains, in the villages, everywhere, trying to get at him. And David has had close call after close call. He's got 600 men, their wives and their children, that he's trying to take care of. He has now two wives. One that he particularly loves, we know, is Abigail. And he's trying to take care of his own family. And he's just thinking, this is the end of it. Saul is going to get me before this is all over. David's forgetting something very important, isn't he? He's forgetting the promise of God. He's forgetting the presence of God. He's forgetting the power of God. And when you get really exhausted, sometimes you turn to these last resorts in your mind that are resorts that have to do with something other than trusting God and His gracious providence towards you. And this is just an event where... We don't get any commentary on this. And this is troublesome to us for several reasons because there's a lot going on in here that is not very savory. And we would expect some theological comment on it. I mean, when David commits immorality with Bathsheba and murders Uriah, believe me, we get some comment on it in the Bible. Uh, David's poor child rearing certainly gets comments uh, when Absalom is driving him out of Jerusalem. And when David... uh, doesn't trust the Lord and counts his men against God's uh, will, we certainly get comment on it. Here we don't get comments. Very interesting. And part of what we're learning is that life is a mess. It's continually a mess. You're a mess. And you're doing stuff every day that if God were uh, only just and not merciful, if God just dealt with you as a legal entity instead of his son, uh, you you wouldn't live past dawn. Believe me. And here we're going to get into David's life and see the man was a mess. And the reason he got into trouble in these other ways that we'll see in 2 Samuel is because David was inclined to these things. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. He really did love the Lord, but he did some crazy, stupid, uh, irreverent, disobedient things. And here's a chapter full of it. First of all, that he decides to go to the Philistines instead of trusting the Lord to keep him safe in the land of Israel. Now let's notice how it starts, and and on these chapters, since we're going to breeze through them, because we don't have much time, I'm just giving a few notes about things that we ought to take away devotionally from that chapter. So on your notes, 
uh, on this one. The first asterisk there, our self-talk determines our conduct. Our self-talk determines our conduct. Look at David's self-talk in verse 1. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Where did he get that? Did God ever say that to him? You know, one day, David, you're going to perish at the hand of Saul. No, God made it clear to him he wasn't going to perish at the hand of Saul, but David starts talking to him that way, that way talk, talking to himself that way, when he gets exhausted, weary, discouraged. And uh, then he says, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Yes, there is something better for you, David. The something that's better for you is to stay in the land of Israel, the promised land, and trust the Lord. That'd be a whole lot better. But our self-talk determines our conduct. Uh, let's look, for example, how important it is uh, to talk to yourself in the right way. Look at Psalm 42. This is page 989 in your ESV study Bible. Look at Psalm 42, this well-known psalm. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, uh, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my de- food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So you can see the psalmist is weeping, he's discouraged. The atheists are saying to him, Where is your God? doesn't seem that your life's any better than my life. seems like your life's pretty miserable. Where is your God? These things I remember, he says, as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he, he's recalling his festivals and the cheerful, joyful times of worship, but they're just a thing of the past. And by contrast, it makes him even more miserable. But then look how he starts preaching to himself in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, why are you downcast? He's talking to himself. He says, soul, I'm going to take you in my hand and give you a little chat right now this morning. Why are you downcast? You put your hope in God. He's talking to himself. It's not just when you get old like me, you start talking to yourself. No, no. It's uh, when, you're, when you're a believer and you know that God has something to say to your soul and you start bringing those words to your soul. You've got to go outside every once in a while and have a little chat with yourself. Sometimes it might help you. If you, if you can kind of have an out-of-body experience, so to speak, and imagine one of your friends in the same situation that you're in, how would you advise him? Now start advising yourself the same way. Just imagine one of your friends being in the same moral circumstance, same financial circumstance, same marital circumstance that you're in. Start counseling that friend and then just turn it right in yourself and just turn that counsel right to yourself. That's what the psalmist does. That's what David was doing, but he wasn't doing it with the Word of God and His promises. So our self-talk determines our conduct. You've got to learn to talk to yourself. The second note I'd like for us to make is that just because Christians do it, doesn't mean God approves it. We mustn't copy everything our heroes do. So you can have a hero, someone you admire greatly, and I'm, I'll guarantee you he's going to make a mistake. And if he's a big hero, he's going to make big mistakes. So when he makes mistakes, they're going to have more consequences than if somebody else makes a mistake. So if you have some mentor, some coach, somebody that you really admire, just watch out. 
You don't make a God out of them. You don't make a God out of David. Yes, we learn many things positively from David, but gentlemen, we're going to learn a lot of negative things from David. Why? He's a sinner just like we are. So we'll have sympathy for him. We'll not condemn him. God doesn't condemn him. He's a man after God's own heart. God loves him. But we're also going to see that, that uh, people that we love and admire do stupid stuff. They do sinful stuff, things that we should not emulate. And I have to say that here in this text, um, it's very hard to read this. Um, David, you'll notice the strategy here. David is going over with the Philistines because if he can co-opt the Philistines somehow, he will gain protection against Saul. Saul's having a, the dickens of a time trying to fight the Philistines, and he's not going to try to fight David if he's in among the Philistines, and the Philistines are protecting him. And believe me, David was a schmoozer. <laughs> David knew how to make friends. David knew how to negotiate. And that part of it we can commend him for. He knew how to get along with his enemies. Sometimes, you know, you and I need to learn how to get along better with our enemies, but not the way David's doing it. David goes among his enemies. And you'll notice that when he goes out uh, to uh, have these raids, which is the way that he's gaining income for his 600 men, it's kind of like Soviet Russia, to be, to be honest. Just go out and take a nation every once in a while and get their goods and depress them, and that's how you keep uh, bringing in the goods into your own nation. Just hegemony, just take over neighboring countries. Well, David was kind of doing that. Now, he was raiding bad guys. These were all, he was raiding raiders, and uh, he was going out and raiding them and taking their stuff and providing for 600 men and their families. And you'll notice in these names of the places he was raiding, Verse 8, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites we recognize as enemies of Israel, but these raiders uh, in the Geshurites and the Gerzites also clearly were. So what David was doing, he was under the protection of the Philistines, but unbeknownst to them, he was launching from there his raids among Israel's enemies. So actually, he was doing Israel's work while he was hiding among the Philistines. Now that would not have made the Philistines very happy. So what does he do? Two things. And these, these are wicked. The most wicked was this. David took the lives, not only of all the raiders, but all of their wives and all of their children. He didn't leave one of them alive. Why? Because they would have reported him out. And it would have been discovered that David was using the Philistine camp as a launching pad to raid Israel's enemies. Now, why would that have been bad news to the Philistines? Because the Philistines needed help from all these raiders. I mean, if you're in a battle, I mean, for heaven's sakes, we were allies with Russia in World War II. Almost went to war with them after World War II. But during World War II, we needed them because they had, a major, they had the Eastern Front against Germany. So when you're in warfare, you're looking, you're, you'll ally with a bunch of people who are not your natural allies. But in that moment, they become your allies. That's the way the, the Amalekites were with the Philistines. They were both uh, enemies of Israel, and they were helping each other without really liking each other very much. Well, the Philistines wouldn't have wanted David to go out and destroy common enemies of Israel. So what did David do? He went out and destroyed them, and he destroyed all the families. Now, there are moments... When God orders that because of divine justice, His holy wrath 
finally being reaching its con, uh, consummate point, and he will wipe out in judgment a whole nation of people. That does happen in the Bible. That's holy war. But we have no indication here that David had any word from God that he was to go out and curse a whole nation and take wives and children as well, but he did, and it was pragmatic. Second thing David did, he's lied through his teeth. He went back to these Philistine rulers. He didn't tell them who he was raiding. No. He said, look at verse 10. They said, where have you been today, Dave? Well, I'll tell you, I've been down there in the Negev of Judah. He lied. He said he had been fighting the Judahites. He'd been fighting God's people. So he was going out, uh, taking on Israel's enemies, lying about it, and wiping all of them out so they couldn't report on it. This is David's life. Some life. Rather than choosing to live among God's people and trust God's providence and protection, he goes and lives among the enemy. And uh, that will lead you to one sin after another. When you move, turn your back on God and forget his promises or don't trust his promises, it's going to lead to one thing after another. And you find you're building this incredible web of evil all around you. But thirdly, as, third asterisk, notice this. God protects his servants even when we act unwisely. It's amazing that we are told in verse 12 that Achish trusted David. David didn't, didn't deserve to be trusted, but Achish trusted David. So even this is, this is really the main point. The main point is about God, although His name doesn't even appear in the text, in the chapter. It's all about God and His providence. You understand how gracious he is? You turn your back on him, you don't trust his promises, you try your stupid little scheme, and then it works. And you go, that's not fair. God should have judged me. No, it's not fair. And the reason he didn't is he has a purpose for your life, and he's going to preserve you to the very end. He's going to bring you home with himself, and he's going to completely sanctify you. So yes, these things are wrong, and David should have taken another Another tact, if, if this were a Muslim story, you know, David would be judged. That'd be the end of it. It's not a Muslim story. It's a biblical story about God's grace. And God's grace is so great that He takes even your wicked scheming and works it out many times for your benefit. Have you not thought many times, you know, I just escaped disaster. I was so unwise. I was so wrong and what I did, and, and, and I still came out. Okay. Has that not happened to you a zillion times? Maybe you're not as old as I am. But you're going to be as old as I am. It's happened to you a bunch of times. And here's the story. You've done some things that were terrible, but you're still God's child. You're His anointed, and He's still preserving you, even among your foolish acts. Well, let's turn the page here to chapter, or not the page, but look down at the bottom of the page, chapter 28. Now, notice in verses 1 and 2, in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. <laughs> That's how much Achish trusted untrustworthy David. I'll make you my bodyguard for life. We're going into battle together. Now, we'll pick up on this story in chapter 29. What the author does now in chapter 28, he takes a little, um, a little section 
and uh, takes it out of context, historical context, and wants to tell us about Saul. So you got David over here who's sending up a storm and about ready to get himself in a real mess because he's made himself such friends with Achish that now in order to play this scheme all the way out, he's going to have to go into battle with Achish against his own people, Israel. How in the world is David going to get out of this? What in the world is he going to do? I mean, he's trapped, isn't he? I mean, if he comes out and explains that he's been lying and that he really is faithful to Israel, the, the Philistines are going to kill him. If he fights with the Philistines against the Israelites, he's working against the very reason God has anointed him as king. So he is really, he is really cooked now. He's gotten himself into a big mess. Well, we'll see how God deals with him in this mess. But meanwhile, chapter 28, now God's going to take us over to a story about Saul. With David, we're going to see how God's anointed gets into sin and God spares him. With Saul, we're going to see how Saul gets into sin and it just gets worse. And it's very dark and very evil. And God is not protecting him, but is judging him as he said he would. And we'll see the difference. We'll look at chapter 28, verse 3. Let's pick up there. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Okay, notice here, first asterisk, God strictly forbids witchcraft, even if it works. Now we're going to see here that there's a certain sense in which it does work. We're going to see that there is a spiritual world, a dark spiritual world, that can humanly be accessed. But we're to remember that we're not supposed to know everything. In the very Garden of Eden, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you're not supposed to know that. God says, don't eat of, that fruit, of, that, of the fruit of that tree. I don't want you to have the knowledge of the good and evil. There, we think of ourselves as wanting to not have all knowledge. We don't want all knowledge. It's not all edifying. It's not all useful. It's not all God-honoring. And here is some knowledge of darkness and the spirit world that God has already told us in Deuteronomy chapter 12, that, verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 9 and following, that we're not to access. Yes, you can access it. Let me tell you how, you how you can access it. Find a witch, a necromancer, a medium, spiritual medium, and go to them and give your soul away to them and the devil. That's what it requires. It requires a willingness on your part to walk in darkness and to give your life to the evil world. Now you can access it. And what we're being told in the Garden of Eden is, no, you don't want the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from it. And here in Israel, Israel had been told, this is the way of the worship of the Canaanites. They love accessing spiritual powers, whether they're good or evil. You're not like that. 
you access one power, the living God, who is holy, 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 and His righteousness endures forever. That's the spiritual power you access. That's what makes you my people. Don't access this other. But Saul goes to the Lord and the Lord doesn't answer. You say, well, where else shall he go? I'll tell you where else he should go. Put your finger there for just a moment and turn to Psalm 13. And here you'll get a psalm of David. And David feels the same way Saul does in this particular psalm. But let's see what he does. This is uh, page 953. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So David's got a complaint. How long, Lord, will it be until you speak up? How long, O Lord, will it be until you show up? How long, O Lord, will it be until you lift up the heart of your servant? I'm dying down here. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Let my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David goes to the Lord, and he doesn't let go. And he says, Lord, I don't know how long it's going to be until your word shows up in my life again. I don't know how long it'll be until the light shines on my path again. But Lord, I'm trusting you, and you've been good to me in the past. Speak up, O Lord. David goes to the Lord. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, you don't want to talk? Fine, I'll go over here. There's not one word of repentance in this text in 1 Samuel 28, if you go back to that chapter. Not one moment when Saul is repentant. Now Saul's a little whining uh, uh, narcissist who's interested in only people treating him right. We've already seen how he puts himself in the role of victim all the time. Even with respect to God. God's victimized me. Okay, I'll go to the underworld. And that's what he does. Pick it up again in verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Look at that. Swore to her by Yahweh. That's the only time he's looking to the Lord is just to swear by his name. He's actually taking his name in vain. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. You say, can that really happen? Yeah, I guess it can. I've never seen that. If it does, it'll scare the bejabbers out of me, and I'll be on my face too. Uh, get me out of this room. This is dark. Get me out of here. It's powerful. It's wicked. It's scary. It's ghosts and goblins. Yes, there is a spiritual world. You're not supposed to access it. Leave it alone. Leave it with God. 
Ask him to handle all that business for you. Don't you get in there and start negotiating with dark spirits. Don't you try to make a deal with them. Don't you try to reason with them. They're not interested in reason. They're not interested in you. They're interested in your destruction. So don't have anything to do with them. Just hand them all over to the Lord. You keep walking in the light and ask the Lord to go over there and handle that. Uh, one, you know, Spurgeon says that when Satan uh, knocks on your door, you say, Jesus, would you get that, please? And that's exactly the way to deal with it. You let Jesus deal with the dark spirits. He does. He deals with them. They're in all in abject terror of the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look in the Gospels. And every time there are evil spirits around, they bow down and shriek in utter terror at the sovereign lordship of your Savior and your friend. So why don't you just leave it there? And don't put yourself out there. Let me tell you something. They're not afraid of you. They do not shriek in terror with you. They look forward to taking advantage of you. They like to indwell you. They like to manipulate you. Because you can't stand up against them unless Jesus Christ is inside of you. And then he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you're depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul was not. Saul was interested in the underworld. Why? He wanted information about his narcissistic self. And that was his God. His welfare, his being, his power, his throne. That was his God. And that was all that he was interested in. No matter what it took him to get that information and try to manipulate history, that's what he was going to do. He was abjectly godless. So Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophet or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Look at the reasoning there. God's turned his back on me. How many times have people said to you when they stop reading the Bible, they stop going to church, they stop making any financial contribution to God's work anywhere, you know, God just has turned His back on me. Well, guess what? If God just turned His back on you, why don't you get down on your face and plead with Him to turn His face back towards you? Has God ever turned away a repentant sinner? Ever? In the history of the universe? No, never. Saul doesn't go on his face and beg for mercy and beg for forgiveness. Not once. He just says he's turned his back on me, so that now justifies my wicked behavior. It's an amazing display here of the wicked, selfish, stubborn, self-centered heart. And because you did not, and, and then Samuel said, verse 16, Why then did you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has turned the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So now Samuel tells him, Tomorrow's your day to say goodbye to this earth, Saul. Now you'll see after that Saul just is devastated. He can't eat. He can't get up off the ground. And finally, at the end of this chapter, he gets up off the ground and sits on the bed. They make him eat a little bit. And then we're told at the end of the chapter, he walks out into the night. That's the, that's, that's the last we get of Saul and his encounter with God. Next day he dies in battle, as we'll see next week. So here what the author of 1 Samuel is doing is showing you, yeah, hey, David is no angel. Although Achish 
claims that he is. He's not. But he's very different from Saul. And there's where you see the distinction. Both men get into trouble. But one of them will be repentant. And the other just pursues darkness after darkness after darkness. Now let me just make a side comment. And let me be sure I'm filling in these blanks for us. First of all, let's go back to the asterisks. Trials reveal our God. So when the trials come, we'll see where your character is. And we saw really in both cases, David is a man of God's own heart, but when trials came and he was weary, he chose a pragmatic approach instead of a theological approach. And certainly Saul, you see his character, he goes to the darkness of a, of a medium, spiritual medium, for guidance in his life. The third asterisk, those who reject Yahweh lose his word. In verse 15, you see Saul said he's not talking to me anymore. Yeah, then you turn your back further on him and he doesn't talk to you anymore. So the judgment of God upon the unregenerate is eventually they even lose access to God's word. Saul wanted guidance, but he wanted it for the wrong reasons. He wanted to be victorious over the Philistines. He wanted to survive this battle. He was looking for guidance as to whether he should engage the battle, and God wouldn't give it to him. That's all he needed to turn his back on God. God doesn't give me what I want. I'm out of here. David, on the other hand, is going to be seeking God because of who God is. And he accepts like God's providence in his life overall, but not perfectly, as we've seen in chapter 27. Those who reject Yahweh lose Yahweh's word. The fourth asterisk, the burdens of the believer are far lighter than those of the unbeliever. David really misbehaves badly. And that's a burden. To have that on your conscience all your life, that you violated the just war theory, and you engaged a battle, and destroyed some families that shouldn't have been destroyed, and you have a lie on your record before God. You just bold-faced lied because you were covering up the, you know, the former evil you had already done, so now you need to lie your way through it. That's, that's a burden to have on your heart. But David, as we know in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, he finds forgiveness from God, and God takes that burden from him. On the other hand, look at Saul and the darkness of his life. He has nowhere to take his sin. He has nowhere to find repentance. He has no access to God's Word, ultimately, because he continues to turn his back. What a burden! And what the writer of Samuel is showing us here is, this, the reason this comes in non-chronologically, because it really belongs a, a little later, because they haven't gone into battle yet. It's not the night before the battle. But Samuel shows us this story by contrast with David and Saul. Neither one of them... Uh, goody two-shoes, but one of them a believer and one not. Now let's look at uh, chapter 29. We've already read the first two verses of 28, but pick up now with 29 and we'll see that uh, David now goes into battle. We'll see what happens. Or he's, he's about to go into battle. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and you can see the map down there where Aphek is. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? You get the point? Achish trusts David. David's going to be his bodyguard for life. David's in the rear guard of Aphek's forces. 
Aphek now joins four other Philistine uh, kings who are going to join the battle together against the Israelites. Aphek, or rather, uh, Achish trusts David implicitly. He's going to take David into battle against fellow Hebrews. But when the other kings and commanders of their forces see Achish's troops coming up with Jews in it, he says, what are you doing? We're getting ready to fight the Jews and you bring Jews over here? Look at their argument. They're just incensed. But Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So Achish defends David. Amazing here what's going on. David is going, Achish, why don't you just go ahead and listen to him? You know, after all, you know, if they don't want me to fight, I don't understand. That's what I would do, get myself out of there. Because remember, David's the one who's gotten himself in this mess. He is trapped. He's either going to be betrayed by the Philistines or he's going to betray his own people, the Israelites. He's gotten himself into a huge mess. But his commander is so confident in David, he defends him. Verse 4, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. They continued the argument. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to me uh, to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So they're saying, Achish, you knucklehead, how is he going to get reconciled to Israel? The only way he's going to get reconciled is to take our heads off. Do you not know this man's history? How everybody was celebrating how he killed ten thousands of our people? I mean, they're, they're just astonished that Achish could have been hoodwinked to this degree. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out in with me in the campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Now, if I were David, I would say, I understand completely. But David, I don't know if he's shrewd in this moment or stupid, but, but look at his answer in verse 8. But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answers again to David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> That's ironic. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, let's look at some notes on this. First of all, God uses even our sin. God is the one who got David out of the horrendous mess that David had created for himself. Are you not astonished with how God takes up for his men, for you? Do you know how many knucklehead things you've done? <laughs> Do you know how many fixes you've gotten into? Do you know how many more you're going to get into? And you can't extract yourself from it. You're trapped. 
It's all, you've, you've now come to the end. You're, you're at the Red Sea and you've got bloodthirsty Egyptians behind you and only water in front of you. What in the world are you going to do? You better trust in God. That's all I can say. And here David experiences redemption. This is what it's all about when you cannot help yourself, you cannot extract yourself. Look what God is doing for you, even through your evil choices. Now, I put in the discussion questions, how can this be true and we still have incentive to live a holy life? I want you to discuss that. But I'll just give you a little hint. Mark Romans 6 on that discussion question. You just take a look at Romans 6, and there's your answer, because Paul anticipates that question. How, if we're justified through faith alone, through nothing that we've done, in fact, it's contrary, our justification is contrary to what we deserve. If that's true, what motive is there to live a holy life? And Romans 6 will give you the answer. You might want to study that chapter as you answer that discussion question uh, this, this morning or later this week. But it's true. God looks out for His own. And then secondly, notice He uses unbelievers' sin. And unbelievers' stupidity and blindness. Achish defends David three times. Do you realize that God is using unbelievers all around you to bless you all the time? Of course He is. He does that all the time. I find people who get mad, for example, they go to their church and they don't find any real fellowship and then on Tuesday night after work, they go down to the bar, and the bartender is very understanding, and he's listening to all your problems while he's pouring you, you know, your Jack Daniels on the rocks, and uh, at least that was mine of choice some years ago. And, you know, as the evening goes on, he seems more and more reasonable, actually. And... Uh, He's giving you great advice, and he doesn't condemn you one bit. Everything you say, every stupid thing you tell him that you ever did, he says, ah, yeah, you know, everybody, everybody messes up. And you just get, I mean, in the bar, you just get complete grace, isn't it? It's really a good, good you might want to take a trip on a Tuesday night sometime. And <laughs> now, when you get there in the bar, and this guy's being so kind to you and so wise, and you, feel, you come out of there, and you, all of a sudden you feel like a human being again. You feel like you're accepted. You belong somewhere. Joe, Joe's Bar and Grill. You belong there. You know that's that's a place where you you feel like you got family and real fellowship. Other men, you know, they're there. And we're all like we're all we're all struggling. You know. And then you go to your church and you think, ah, these dang people. They're so judgmental. They got all these moral rules, and you resent the church, which is made up of God's people, because those who aren't God's people were kind to you. Now, does this make any sense? It makes no sense if you're, if you're theologically a Christian because you believe that God is everywhere. He's looking out for you with the unbelievers and with the believers. And so if you had a good day at the bar, thank God for a good day at the bar, but that doesn't mean that the believers aren't also God's people. They're both true. Some of you go to AA and you say, you know, I don't, don't bother with the church. You know, I just need my AA. You know, I just need my accountability group and, and all that kind of thing. Don't you realize that, yeah, God is working through the unbelieving world too. He's on your, he's working on your behalf in every corner, in every place that you are. That doesn't mean that you don't belong to Israel and that you have a special interest and a special obligation to God's people. And David was learning that here, that God uses even unbelievers' sin, even Achish, to get David back on track. So now imagine, as we come to the last chapter we want to look at, chapter 30, David is... I mean, 
he is whistling Dixie all the way home. I mean, 65-mile walk from Afik to Ziklag, his home. Probably takes him, what, three days, you know, with all their equipment and everything. They're walking along, these 600 guys, thinking, man, we just got off the hook. This is unbelievable. And they say there is no God. Are you kidding me? Look what he just did for us. I mean, we were, we were just, you know, between a rock and a hard place. There was no way for us to escape. And look what God did. We're free as a bird. We're not engaging battle. We get to go home, have a home-cooked meal, sleep with our wives, you know, in about three days when we get home. Man, David, you're incredible. You're just an amazing leader. God must really be with you. That's the way they were feeling, okay? Now turn to chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Let's stop there. They're bitter. They're grieved. They've lost everything that they were fighting for. They lost what they came to the Philistines to preserve. The reason they came to be with the Philistines is so they could protect their wives and their children as well as their own lives. They thought they'd just been delivered from their trap up in Aphek. And now when they thought this could get no worse, it just got a whole lot worse. Has that ever happened to you? Is this a time to turn your back on God? Here are people who were following David into all kinds of battles. They'd been walking around with him for years while Saul the king was pursuing him. And they were loyal to David. And now they're ready to stone him. They've just had enough. It's time for this young man to go. And they're ready to eliminate him. David, you shouldn't have brought us here in the first place. You weren't listening to God. David, David this, David that, David the other. They're ready to let him go. Now look what David does in 6b. This is crucial. This is the difference between David and Saul. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now notice under your notes, sometimes our trials seem too much to bear. David has just lost everything except 600 violent men. That's all he's got now. That seems too much to bear. And it seems as though he's lost Abigail. Ahinoam I don't know so well. I don't have the same admiration for her. But Abigail, I've already told you. You know, if I were ever to have an affair, that'd be the one I'd have one with. Uh, she's an amazing woman. And he's lost her. And everybody's bitter with him and ready to commit mutiny now. Sometimes our trials seem just too much absolutely to bear. If there ever were a time I'm going to turn to the witch of Endor, it's going to be now. Because my Christianity is not working for me. That's the way David had to feel. It's time to go to the witches and see what they could do. David didn't. 
he went to the Lord to be strengthened. Believers have a divine secret. That's second asterisk. Believers have a divine secret. You'll find it in Philippians 4 with the Apostle Paul. When he's in prison, after over 30 years of faithful ministry, this is what he gets. He gets house arrest in Rome, chained to a guard on four-hour shifts with no food unless someone brings it to him and doesn't even have his, his scrolls to read and doesn't have a cloak to stay warm in the Roman winter. That's what I get for serving God for 30 years, Paul could have said. But when you read Philippians, he'll say, I've learned the secret of being content no matter what the circumstances. And here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can endure all things. I can face all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. What is David doing now? He's going to the Lord to be strengthened. What does it mean to be strengthened? Well, you can turn back to 1 Samuel 23. When Jonathan goes out, remember, to strengthen David in the Lord, how does Jonathan strengthen David? Here's how he strengthens him. He reminds David of the promises of God. And he said, David, my father Saul is not to be the king. You are to be the king. God has promised this. And when we're to be strengthened in the Lord, we go back to His promises. It doesn't seem to be working out for you right now. Well, let me tell you what your problem is. You've got a time frame like that. God has a time frame like that. And you are drawing all of your conclusions from your infantile perspective of one little moment. And God has the adult perspective of your whole life, your eternal life, and what's really in your best interest. And David goes back to God to be strengthened with God's promises that are eternal promises. David, your house will never perish. And he goes back to be strengthened. That's exactly what men must do today. Recall his promises and secondly, seek his presence. You have access not to the dark underworld in walking with God. You have access to God himself. And we actually have a high priest who stands between us and God Almighty. His name is Jesus Christ. And he grants us everlasting access to the throne of God. So we seek to recall His promises, and we seek to experience His presence. We enter His throne room again. We have access to Him. We can talk to Him, and He'll talk to us. We enter a conversation. And that's what David does in his moment of distress. He remembers the divine secret of contentment that comes from seeking God. Now, let's keep reading uh, quickly. Let's look at this story because it ends happily, as you'll see, at least for David. Uh, and David said to Abiathar, uh, verse 7, the priest, bring me the ephod, which he does. And, of course, that's seeking the presence of God. And then David pursues with 400 men, verse 10, because 200 were completely exhausted. They've been on a 65-mile march. They find their city exhausted. They exhaust themselves with grief and tears and sorrow. And now they keep marching another 10 miles. They've had it. They just can't go any further. And so 200 stop. 400 go for, forward. And look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this land? And he said, Swear to me by God 
that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Gentlemen, do you see again the hand of God? Have you ever tried to find a raiding party that doesn't leave any evidence about where they went? Have you ever gone out into the wilderness and just tried to find someone with no hint about where they are, and then all of a sudden, there is a near-dead Egyptian. Give him a little water, give him a little food, give him a promise you're not going to kill him, and then get the information from him, get intelligence from him. You think that was an accident? You think it had nothing to do with God's providence? No. God is leading David to these bloodthirsty Amalekites. Well, when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing. And here it is, David defeats them and gets all of the women and children back, gets all of the livestock back, gets all the robes and the property back, all of it. And look at verse 20. They say to all the villages around, this is David's spoil. So everybody is aware that David has won a great victory. David the leader, the shrewd, lying, murderous leader is great. This is David's spoil. But Then look how David deals with it. Verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. They went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Look at David's answer. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what, look at this, the Lord, Yahweh, has given us. The wicked men said, the spoil that we have recovered. David says, the spoil God has recovered. He has preserved us, verse 23, and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be. Who stays with the baggage? They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. In other words, you didn't earn it. You didn't win the spoils. God won it for you. Now with all of David's disobedience and all of his unwise decisions, God is his God. And David is God-centered in his thinking. And David knows that God's the one who got him out of the mess. God's the one who recovered everything for him. And now David is going to live a life that pleases the Lord. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil. Now look at this, verse 26, of the enemies of the Lord. The enemies of the Lord. That's a key phrase. These are not just the enemies of Israel. These are not just the enemies of David. They're the enemies of, the, of Yahweh. Here's what David is saying. Your enemies, your arch enemies, if you're a believer, are God's enemies. No one dare lay a hand on you lest they want to deal with God. That's what David is saying. Make no mistake about it. We don't take the spoils for ourselves. We spread it out to God's people because it's God who's done it. So in your asterisk, notice believers have a divine secret, but believers don't forget Him. They don't forget Him. And lastly, God's victory is assured because our enemies are God's enemies. Gentlemen, it's really messy. These four chapters, very, very messy. If you just like little moral fables where the good guy wins and the bad guy's always destroyed and the good guy's always good and the bad guy's always bad, this one wears a white hat and that one wears a black hat, you won't be very happy with the Bible because the Bible is very realistic. 
It's like the messy world that you live in. But in your messy world, please remember this. You belong to the Lord. Whether you make mistakes or not make mistakes, whether you make good decisions or bad decisions, you belong to the Lord. And when He delivers you through your wisdom and your foolishness, when He delivers you, be sure to say, it is the Lord's doing and His alone. And be sure to respond with taking the spoils of your deliverance, which is called income. It's called a house, a car, a place to live, a family. When you receive the spoils of His redemption, be sure that you spread them out in His interest because they're His property and He's won them for you. And when you get to the last day, just remember this, when you're on your dying bed, God will win the victory. Because at the last day when the Son of David returns in all of His glory, even your dead body is coming roaring out of the grave. And all the souls of this world and all the Achishes of this world and all the witches of Endor of this world are going to see who the real princes on the face of the earth have always been. And it is you. Let's pray. Father, we are deeply thankful for the promises of Your Word and pray that we may attach ourselves to them. Forgive us for the many times when we've sought the protection of the Philistines and negotiated with Achish. Forgive us for the times we've forgotten how You've many times delivered us from these troubles and trials. And enable us even today to take the spoils of Your great victory and to spread them abroad at Your feet and to worship you with the very things that you put into our hands, including our very lives. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.